Welcome to the April 6, 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to telling you about what's new in Annals since our last podcast. Let's get right to the new articles, beginning with those published online on March 23rd. Obesity is a major risk factor for knee osteoarthritis, which affects more than 14 million adults in the United States. As such, a growing proportion of patients receiving total knee replacement are obese with BMI of 30 kilograms per meter square or higher. In fact, 45.5% of total knee replacement recipients in 2006 through 2010 had a BMI between 30 and 40, and 14.8% had BMI over 40. While total knee replacement has been shown to be very effective and cost-effective in non-obese patients with end-stage knee osteoarthritis, the question whether or not total knee replacement is cost-effective in an obese population has not been previously studied. Researchers from Brigham and Women's Hospital used the osteoarthritis policy model to assess the value of total knee replacement in recipients with extreme obesity across two age strata, younger or older than 65 years, as well as in the presence and absence of two major comorbidities, cardiovascular disease and diabetes, that have been shown to increase the risk of perioperative complications during joint replacement. The researchers took into consideration high rates of complications in patients with extreme obesity. They found that total knee replacement was a cost-effective strategy for patients aged 50 to 65 years with severe obesity, as well as for patients older than 65 years. Similar findings were noted for total knee replacement among patients with extreme obesity and end-stage knee osteoarthritis in the presence of cardiovascular disease and or type 2 diabetes. The researchers concluded that from a cost-effectiveness perspective, total knee replacement leads to substantial improvements in quality-adjusted life expectancy and offers good value in patients with extreme obesity and end-stage knee osteoarthritis. The next article reports a study that concludes that increasing the number of primary care physicians in underserved areas in the U.S. could prevent more than 7,000 deaths per year in those areas and boost life expectancy by an average of 56 days. To achieve such gains in death prevention and life expectancy, the U.S. physician workforce would need to add 95,754 new physicians to its ranks and allocate them to shortage areas. Studies have shown that having a greater number of primary care physicians per population is associated with reducing population mortality. For this reason, addressing the primary care shortage is a public health priority. A shortage is defined in the study as having fewer than one primary care physicians per 3,500 residents in an area. Researchers from Harvard Medical School studied population health data for 3,400 U.S. counties to estimate how alleviating primary care physician shortages might change life expectancy and mortality. They found that individuals who lived in counties with more acute shortages had an average life expectancy that was 311 days shorter than individuals living in counties with more primary care physicians. The gap in life expectancy grew wider, 629 days, when researchers compared counties with one primary care doctor per 1,500 individuals and counties with fewer than one primary care physician per 1,500 people. According to the researchers, these findings underscore the need for increasing access to primary care by encouraging physicians to consider practices in underserved regions of the country. Although pediatric sickle cell disease care and survival have improved significantly, adult care remains poor overall. On average, people with sickle cell disease die 20 years earlier and with 
$50 less in lifetime earnings than those without sickle cell disease. Adult care is fragmented and lacks the necessary resources and expertise to manage this complicated disease. Despite the potential of validated disease-modifying treatments to improve and extend life, there's very poor implementation and use of such treatments. Next is a commentary that discusses these marked shortcomings in the care of patients with sickle cell disease, and the authors attribute them to two issues, payment and discrimination. Providers who may carry unconscious distrust of patients with sickle cell disease and distrust on both the part of the physicians and the patients has been associated with worse care delivery. The authors propose strategies to break the cycle of distrust. Also published on March 23rd is the latest on being a doctor-mom feature in Annals Graphic Medicine. The topic is the annual professional review. On March 24th, Annals of Internal Medicine, the American College of Physicians, hosted a virtual COVID-19 vaccine forum where expert panelists discussed practical clinical considerations related to the COVID-19 vaccine, including the impact of COVID-19 variants on vaccine efficacy, comparative effectiveness of the different vaccines, and post-vaccine behavior recommendations. Video of the live event is now publicly available on annals.org, along with an opportunity to earn CME and MOC credit for those who watch the program. This forum was the fourth in a series of vaccine forums hosted by Annals and ACP. The prior programs are also available on annals.org. Annals Deputy Editor and Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Deborah Cotton, led the panel that included Dr. Carlos Del Rio, Executive Associate Dean and Distinguished Professor in the Department of Medicine, and the Division of Infectious Diseases at Emory University, and Dr. Paul Sachs, Clinical Director of Infectious Diseases and Professor of Medicine at Harvard University. During the forum, the panelists addressed concerns related to COVID-19 vaccination submitted by attendees when they registered for the live forum. Topics covered included who should not get the vaccine, equity of vaccine distribution, COVID-19 variants and their spread, as well as whether or not women who are pregnant should get the vaccine. The panelists also touched on long COVID, whether COVID-19 vaccines should be required for healthcare workers, much like flu vaccine, where the use of masks is here to stay, COVID-19 testing, and the lack of sufficient therapies available to treat those who become infected. The panelists noted much to celebrate in terms of scientific progress towards defeating SARS-CoV-2, but now is not the time to grow complacent. Annals and ACP hope that clinicians will take the knowledge gained from our forums and use it to counter misinformation and squelch vaccination concerns among their patients so that we may soon see a more fully vaccinated population. Moving to articles published on annals.org on March 30th. Warfarin has been the mainstay therapy to prevent stroke in patients with atrial fibrillation, but drawbacks include a narrow therapeutic window, dose-response variability, and many interactions with drugs and food. In patients with non-valvular AFib, randomized clinical trials have demonstrated that direct oral anticoagulants have similar or superior antithrombotic effects to warfarin and lower bleeding risk. While DOEX are increasingly being used in place of warfarin, evidence about their effectiveness and safety in patients with valvular atrial fibrillation remains limited. Researchers from the University of Pennsylvania used data from a practice-based commercial healthcare database to assess the safety and effectiveness of direct-acting oral anticoagulants versus warfarin for adults with valvular atrial fibrillation who were newly prescribed either medication. The primary effectiveness outcome was a composite of ischemic stroke or systemic embolism. The primary safety outcome was a composite of intracranial or gastrointestinal bleeding. 
Among a total of 56,336 patients matched on propensity score, use of DOAX was associated with greater effectiveness defined by the study endpoint compared with warfarin with fewer major bleeding events. These results were consistent for apixaban and rivaroxaban, with dabigatran results were consistent for major bleeding, but not for effectiveness. According to the authors, these findings should help to guide anticoagulant choices for patients with valvular atrial fibrillation. There is mounting evidence of stark inequities in coronavirus disease-related cases and deaths in the United States. The next article reports a study explored the emergence of spatial inequities in COVID-19 testing, positivity, confirmed cases, and mortality in New York, Philadelphia, and Chicago during the first six months of the pandemic, March through September 2020. The design was an ecological observational study at the zip code tabulation area levels of COVID-19 testing, positivity, confirmed cases, and mortality. The main predictors that the researchers focused on were the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Social Vulnerability Index and its four domains, obtained from the 2014 to 2018 American Community Survey. In brief, the researchers identified spatial clusters of high and low positivity, confirmed cases and mortality co-located with clusters of low and high social vulnerability in the three cities. Evidence was also found for spatial inequalities in testing, positivity, confirmed cases, and mortality. Specifically, neighborhoods with higher social vulnerability had lower testing rates and higher positivity rates, confirmed case rates, and mortality rates. In accompanying editorials, Dr. Gabanga Odegbe and Sharon Inoue write, quote, daily news headlines highlight the disproportionate effect of COVID-19 on minoritized communities, particularly those that are socioeconomically disadvantaged. Thus, the findings of the current study are unsurprising. That they provide a level of granularity and clarity that reveals a stark story of a public health catastrophe in the making, end quote. Over the past year, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic has swept the globe, resulting in an enormous worldwide burden of infection and mortality. However, the additional toll resulting from long-term consequences of the pandemic has yet to be tallied. Variable disease manifestations and syndromes are now recognized among some persons after their initial recovery from SARS-CoV-2 infection, representing in the broadest sense a failure to return to a baseline state of health after an acute infection. In December 2020, the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, in collaboration with other institutes and centers of the National Institutes of Health, convened a virtual workshop to summarize existing knowledge on post-acute COVID-19 also commonly referred to as long COVID, and to identify key knowledge gaps regarding this condition. Analysts published an article that summarized the issues raised during this forum. This is certainly an area where we need research to guide the care of a population that could be quite large. Next is an interesting case report that identifies VEXA syndrome to be the underlying cause of peripheral migratory arthritis of small and medium joints. VEXA syndrome is a serious, potentially fatal inflammatory condition that develops in men and causes unexplained fever and painful skin rashes and affects the bone marrow with a pattern suggestive of myelodysplasia. This syndrome only has recently been identified and joint involvement was not detailed in the initial description of the syndrome. Researchers from France report the case of a 66-year-old man without previous medical problems who had a five-year history of chronic progressive inflammatory arthritis. 
The patient was treated as rheumatoid arthritis, first with methotrexate and then with many biological agents, but symptoms did not improve. Rather, the clinical picture was getting worse with the occurrence of macrocytic anemia and chondritis. A re-examination of previous bone marrow aspirations found multiple vacuoles in the cytoplasm of the myeloid and erythroid precursor cells, which are highly suggestive for the VEXA syndrome. The presence of somatic mutation in the UBA1 gene confirmed the diagnosis. According to the researchers, this case shows that VEXA syndrome could be to blame for refractory arthritis-type symptoms. Clinicians should be aware of this possibility when dealing with such patients. While mass shootings were down overall in 2020, any cause for celebration was short-lived. In March 2021, the U.S. experienced two mass shootings, taking a total of 18 lives within the span of less than one week. The first shooting seems to have been targeted against Asian Americans. The motive for the second shooting is not yet known, but the usual blah, blah, blah of thoughts and prayers was a predictable response from both sides of the political divide. In the wake of these two most recent mass shootings, Annals published a commentary by Dr. Douglas DeLong, Chief of the Division of General Internal Medicine at Bassett Healthcare in Cooperstown, New York, and a gun owner himself. Dr. DeLong asserts that it's time for physicians to move past talking and start taking action to protect our patients from firearm injury. Dr. DeLong says that in addition to educating patients and their families about firearm safety, physicians must also act locally to advocate for common sense gun laws. All firearm injury-related content is available for free at the Annals of Internal Medicine website. Physicians are invited to take a pledge located at the top of this collection of articles to talk to their patients about firearm safety and gun ownership when risk factors for harm to their patients or others are present. In the United States, at least 30% of antibiotic use is considered unnecessary, and often antibiotics are continued for longer than necessary. Overuse and misuse of antibiotics with consequent adverse effects on patients and for drug resistance is a major health concern. On April 6th, Annals published recommendations from the American College of Physicians suggesting that a shorter course of antibiotics may be appropriate for some common bacterial infections. Authored by ACP's Scientific Medical Policy Committee, ACP defines appropriate antibiotic use as prescribing the right antibiotic at the right dose for the right duration for the right infection. The paper was developed by conducting a review of published clinical guidelines, systematic reviews, and individual studies that addressed uncomplicated bronchitis with COPD exacerbations, community-acquired pneumonia, urinary tract infections, and cellulitis. When clinically safe and supported by evidence, shorter antibiotic duration decreases overall antibiotic exposure, reducing the risk for resistant organisms to develop, as well as lowering a patient's risk for adverse side effects. Specifically, ACP recommends the following. The ACP recommends a clinician should limit antibiotic treatment duration to five days when managing patients with COPD exacerbations and acute uncomplicated bronchitis who have clinical signs of a bacterial infection. For community-acquired pneumonia, ACP recommends that clinicians should prescribe antibiotics for a minimum of five days. Extensive therapy after five days of antibiotics should be guided by validated measures of clinical stability, which include resolution of vital sign abnormalities, the ability to eat normally, and normal mentation. In women with uncomplicated bacterial cystitis, clinicians should prescribe short-course antibiotics with either nitrofurantoin for five days, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole for three days, or phosphomycin as a single dose. 
In men and women with uncomplicated pyelonephritis, clinicians should prescribe short-course therapy either with fluoroquinolones for 5 to 7 days or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole for 14 days based on antibiotic susceptibility. For patients with non-purulent cellulitis, clinicians should use a 5 to 6-day course of antibiotics active against streptococci, particularly for patients able to self-monitor and have close follow-up with primary care. Hospitalized patients with comorbid substance use disorders are considered a vulnerable patient population at high risk for poorer outcomes and very frequent and fragmented hospital utilization. A coordinated hospital discharge approach that addresses medical needs, addiction, self-care, and basic living requirements is needed to reduce healthcare utilization and improve health outcomes for these patients. Researchers from Trends Research Institute in Baltimore, Maryland, randomly assigned 400 hospitalized patients with comorbid substance use disorders involving opioids or alcohol to NAVSTAR or usual care upon discharge to determine whether patient navigation services would reduce hospital readmissions. All participants were seen by an experienced addiction consultation service while in the hospital and 92% met criteria for severe substance use disorder, while 43% were homeless. In the navigation group, participants received patient navigation services after discharge for up to three months. Data on inpatient readmissions, the primary outcome, and ER visits for 12 months were obtained for all participants via regional health information exchange. Entry into substance use disorder treatment, substance use, and related outcomes were also assessed at three, six, and 12-month follow-up. The researchers found that participants had high levels of acute care use, 69% had inpatient readmission, and 79% visited the emergency department over the 12-month observation period, many of them with multiple readmissions and emergency department visits. Patients in the intervention group had reduced hospital readmissions and emergency department visits compared with usual care over this 12-month study period. The navigation reduced rapid readmissions, meaning that it cut 30-day readmissions by about half. Participants in the navigation group also had increased entry into substance use treatment in the community. According to the researchers, hospitals should devote resources to addressing comorbid substance use disorders, which can greatly affect health and prognosis. The last new material I'll mention is the latest Annals on Call podcast episode. This episode features Dr. Center's discussion with Dr. David Felsen about the appropriate footwear for people who suffer from knee osteoarthritis. That brings us to the end of this podcast. I hope you will go to annals.org to take a closer look at some of the new material I've mentioned and that you will return in two weeks for our next podcast. And as spring emerges in the Northern Hemisphere, bring longer, brighter days, let's hope that better times are also on the horizon around the globe with respect to the pandemic.